Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Just the uh, fifth book of your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So pretty early on. We're going to be going way back in the Old Testament this morning looking at a message uh, and a passage that I think will have real strong application this morning for every one of us. Um, as we look specifically in God's Word there in the book of Deuteronomy. Well, uh, you know, things look different. As I mentioned, mentioned earlier, uh, we are on the heels of Vacation Bible School now and uh, getting set for that to start up tomorrow night. And a lot of folks have worked real hard putting together the set and everything up here like we do every, uh, every year. You know, last summer, or last Sunday rather, I, I mentioned in a message, if you were here, I talked about the topic of fear and what Scripture has to say about that and God's perspective, what our perspective should be. And uh, put some pictures up on the uh, overhead about things that make people afraid, things that are, you know, we, we often are fearful of. And uh, you know, the one for me I put up there was a picture of snakes. And I don't like snakes, and snakes make me very afraid and make me do things that are out of my mind. And so I don't like snakes. And uh, one thing I didn't put was a picture of a rat. And uh, now somebody has put a little rat up there in the, in the, uh, the window, and they're a little drawing. And, uh, and so I'm going to keep my back turned to that part of the, the platform this morning. But things look a lot different. You know, these, these are reflective of medieval times. You know, you've, you've been there, right? Some of you have been to Orlando or Atlanta, and you've done the whole medieval times thing where you get to eat your food without forks and knives and you watch the, you know, the whole competition and everything. You, you remember medieval times. You read about it when you were in school. You may have had a class on it when you were in college. And, and you, you remember things about medieval times, castles and kings. And, and I don't know why I remember this, but I remember serfs. Uh, I have no idea. I cannot remember what a surf was back in those days, but I remember that word, surf. Any of you remember the word surf? Okay, I was feeling a little bit awkward up here all by myself for just a moment. And so medieval times are things we remember, but it's hard for us to really relate to because we don't live that way today, right? We, we don't have kings. We have presidents. We we live in a country, we don't have kingdoms, you know, we don't talk in those terms any longer, we just don't really speak that way. You don't go down to Forsyth Park and see a jousting competition, it just doesn't happen. You didn't park your horse here when you came this morning, at least I hope you didn't, because uh, we're not ready for it, and, and, uh, and so it's just a whole different world, and for us, it's a little bit hard at times to, to kind of make the leap from that time period, you know, 10th century, 11th century, into where we are. But here's what we find is when you read in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, we're talking way back before even the 11th century, you find some of that same terminology. And though life was different, the whole concept of kings was very prevalent in the Old Testament times. And what I want us to look at this morning is we're going to look back in the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to look in Old Testament history. We're going to look all the way back to the times of the people of Israel uh, before Christ came walked this earth. And what we're going to look at is we're going to look at how God spoke into their lives and how he began to prepare for them, because, uh, to, to prepare them for challenges that would come, because the people of Israel would have kings that would rule over them. And to give you a little bit of the backstory, God did not originally design for them to have kings. You know, in God's original design, Israel didn't need a king. But what Israel did was, <laughs> the people of Israel did what we often would do back when we were in you know, sixth grade and seventh grade. They looked around at everybody around them and they said, we want what they've got. And the people of Israel would look at the nations around them, these enemy, pagan, godless nations, and they would finally come to the place where they would say, we want a king like all these other people have a king. For the people of Israel, they looked at one of their leaders, Samuel. Samuel was getting older. His two sons weren't turning out real well, and they didn't 
I want them to be leaders. And so they basically said, you know, we want a king to rule over us. We want a king to make our decisions. We want a king to lead us in battle. We want a king to fight our battles for us. We want a king to rule over us like all the other nations have. And so what God did was, in his sovereignty, in, in, in his perfect control, he allowed Israel to have what they asked for, even though it wasn't his plan A, so to speak. And he allowed the people of Israel to, to have a king. But he would put guardrails in place. And by the time the dust would settle, Israel would have a lot of kings. They would have three that would serve over them when they were all one nation. Later on in their history, Israel would split off into two, two nations, Israel and Judah. Each of them would have 20 kings that would rule over them. And, and so basically, long story short, kings was a big part of the people of Israel. I mean, there are two books in your Bible that you hold in your lap right now, First and Second Kings, that bear that name, because Israel understood what a king was all about. And so whenever God would allow Israel to have a king that would rule over them, here's what he did. He said, I will let you have a king, but there are going to be some guardrails in place. There are some things that have to be in place for that king to function the way he should. And so he began to give them these guidelines. And what we're going to read here in just a moment in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, is we're going to read some of these guidelines that God puts into place ultimately. We're going to make some application from them. So here's the title of the message. The title of the message this morning is The King and His Kingdom. And some of you are thinking, all right, this is Father's Day, so I'm a little bit nervous right now about exactly where, the, where this message is going. I promise it's not what you're thinking. And so, guys, if you're thinking, all right, here, this is the sermon. This is what I've been waiting for all my whole entire life. Finally, this is biblical precedence for me to have one of these right here in the house and grapes tossed into my mouth and you know, all the things I talked about. That's not where this is going. The king is not you and the kingdom ain't yours, okay? So that's not where we're going. But we're going to look at the context of the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel, God's giving them kings. He's going to lay out the guardrails and you will be, you will be surprised perhaps to find that much of what he said to these guys is going to be applicable not only to those of you who are dads today, but for each of us as well. The principles are going to still ring true now thousands of years later. So Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's pick up in verse 14, and we're going to read verse 14 and 15 to start with. Now, if you brought your Bibles, I hope you'll read along with me. If you didn't, we've got it on the overhead there in front of you. So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. It says, when you enter the land, this is the instructions to the people of Israel. Whenever you enter the land, that's the promised land, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. So there was one guardrail. We won't spend much time there. But God says, if you're going to have a king, he's got to be my choice. All right? I'm going to pick the king. You're not going to have some popular vote and get who you want. Uh, I'm going to choose the king for you. So that was one guardrail. Now, let's continue reading. So he says, you'll surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So the other guardrail that we see there is that he had to be an Israelite. He had to be a person from the land of Israel. Well, as we move through the rest of this passage, what we find here is once we jump into verse 16, God's going to tell them three things that this king must not multiply. And if he multiplies, if he pursues these things, and if he multiplies them, it's going to end up as a train wreck for not only him and his family, but the whole entire nation of Israel as well. Okay, so let's jump in. Let's look at the next verse, verse, uh, verse 16. Notice what it says. He says, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. 
since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Now let me just stop there. At the end of that, that verse, it says, you shall never again return that way. It mentions Egypt. So where are we in Old Testament history? Here's where we are. In the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy means second law. It's the retelling of the law that God gave to his people. God is preparing his people to go into the promised land, this land that God set aside and reserved just for them. Now, whenever they would enter this promised land, they're going to go in, and they're just going to absolutely clean house, take names. They're going to go in and take this land, not only by faith, but they're going to have to put their hands to the task and basically do battle with the enemy nations that are there. And so God is preparing his people in Deuteronomy to get ready to go in and to take this promised land, a land that he promised to give them. He had already set them free from Egypt, right, where they were in slavery. Remember, he split the Red Sea, set them free, they crossed the Red Sea. They're, they're now free from the land of Egypt. That's what he's referring to. He says, you'll never go back to the land of Egypt again. He says, so now at this stage in your history, if you want a king, I'll give you a king. He's got to be one of your own. I'm going to pick him, and here's one of the qualifications. He shall not multiply horses for himself. All right? So guys, take that to heart. Here, here's the admonition. Don't you go out, multiply horses for yourselves, and you're going to be okay the rest of your lives, right? That's pretty easy. There's got to be more than that. So what in the world is God saying when he says that a king shall not multiply horses for himself? You've got to remember where we are in history. We're in Old Testament history. We are looking at a time period where life was much different than it was today. And in this context... When a king would multiply horses for himself, what it meant was he was building up his armament. In other words, more horsepower equaled more power. And where a king, where a nation or a kingdom had a lot of horses, it meant it also had a lot of soldiers. And where they had a lot of horses and a lot of soldiers, they had a lot of power, and they pretty much owned all the pieces on the playing board, right? That's what we're looking at. And so whenever God speaks to a king and he says, don't you dare multiply horses for yourself, what he was talking about was the concept of power. And the whole reason God didn't want the people of Israel to have a king to begin with was because God was enough. When they said, we want a king over us to make our decisions, God says, hey, I'm all-knowing. I can make your decisions for you. Just seek me, follow where I lead you. Well, we want a king over us to fight our battles for you. God probably was, you know, in a sense, could have looked back and said, uh, Red Sea, uh, Egyptians, I can fight battles pretty well. I'm going to be enough for you. I can fight your battles for you. You do not need a king. I can be your one who fights your battles. I can be your one who leads you as people. I can be the one who gives you wisdom. I'm all you need. And so when he tells the king, he says, rule number one, do not multiply horses. What he's saying is, he's speaking of the context of power. And there is a principle that applies for us here. And it's a principle I hope you'll jot down. Whether you're a father, whether you're not, this principle is applicable for every single one of us. And here's the principle. We must never trust in our power to succeed. We cannot afford to trust in our power, in our own lives, to succeed in our own lives. Now, before you start thinking, all right, what kind of a message is this? We're going to talk about success for living. Don't throw that out. You've heard me preach long enough. I'm not a feel-good type of a communicator. <laughs> I just try to be faithful to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures say an awful lot about success in our lives. It's not often what we think it is. 
that whenever we look back over the course of our lives, the life that is successful is a life that walks with God. It's a life that is yielded to Christ. It's a life that impacts other people for the sake of eternity. It's a life that finds itself hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. And whenever we think of success from those terms, not dollar signs and not acquisitions and not accomplishments, not degrees, not all those things. When we think of success from God's perspective, what we find is, is that in our, wrapped up in our success is also our yieldedness to God through Jesus Christ. And what God is saying to these kings is he's saying the same thing to us, that we cannot afford to measure the power of our lives on anything other than our submission to him. In fact, here, this may be a shocking revelation that will just blow the lid off of your whole Father's Day. And some of you are going to be depressed the rest of the day. And I'm sorry I ruined your Father's Day, but here it is. You really have no power. You don't. It doesn't matter who answers to your leadership. It doesn't matter what positions you hold in the company. It doesn't matter how many degrees and initials are after or before your name. It really doesn't. You have no power except the power of your influence. That's the power you have. And if God would say to the kings of his people, don't dare multiply horses. In other words, don't you go looking for the identity of your power on other things. Find it in me. He says the same thing to us as well. So he says to them, the first thing he says in this this verse, in verse uh, 16, he says, This king must not multiply horses for himself. Let's look at verse 17 because he mentioned something else as well. Verse 17, he says, He also shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Well, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Um, I doubt that there are any here who have a row full of wives sitting with you on your seat there um, in in this building. I think that's pretty safe to say, you know. It's not as though, you know, you had to call up a realtor and say, yeah, I'm looking for a home a little bit bigger. We're kind of outgrowing this one. Oh, really? You you got a lot of kids? No, just wives. (laughs) You know, that's probably not a conversation. (laughs) Yeah, it's just not really the way we operate here in in this this context, this part of our world today, right? But, But back in these days, again, we have to remember what we're reading here you're looking at a context where the people of Israel were just about to go into the promised land. And they were going to go into this promised land where there were a lot of people who didn't know God, didn't honor God, didn't care about God. And as the people of Israel, in the book of Joshua, the very next book, as they go into this land and they settle there and they take this land, they are going to be surrounded by all these pagan nations. And it was customary for all these pagan nations to have like wife number one and wife number two and wife number 10 and wife number 13 and wife number 28. That was customary for them. That was life. That was the way these pagan nations operated. And God says to the king, the leader of the whole land of Israel, he says, if you're going to be a king, don't you dare, he says, don't you dare multiply wives for yourself. Don't operate this way. Don't be like all the other pagan nations. There were a couple of reasons for this. One was because it went completely against the design that God had put in Scripture to begin with. Right? When, he, when he created, all the way back in Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, he created who? Adam and Eve. And they were the, the first married couple. I mean, it wasn't Adam and Eve and Linda and Sue and Mary and Jay. I mean, it wasn't all the, it was the design that God put in place was the design of a husband and a wife. And whenever, whenever we see scriptures speak of marriage, it often speaks of it in extremely high terms. 
In fact, the, the New Testament describes Jesus' own relationship with the church, meaning the, the body of Christ, those who have a relationship with God. How does he refer to the church? The bride of Christ. And so when he says to the kings, don't multiply wives, he's saying don't navigate outside of what the, the, the structure is that God has already put in place. And, and I'm just saying, for you and for me both, we live in a fallen world. We're surrounded by people who don't care a thing about God, who are going to live by their own terms. If it brings their own gratification, that's what matters most. And there is a real temptation for us, guys, especially for us. There is a real temptation for us to begin to, to absolutely kick to the curb God's ways of living life and just try to live life the way everybody else does. God God says to the king of the land, you cannot do that. Number one, it's not my design. Number two, because if you do that, you're going to be drawing from a group of potential wives. You're going to be drawn from the pagan nations. That's why he says, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. You see that it... They didn't have ChristianMingle.com back then. <laughs> you know, you know, you, you, you're not going to have this king say, you know what, I want a few extra wives, and so uh, I'm not busy enough with my first wife. I don't have enough things to do. The honeydew list ain't long enough. So I, I got room for another three or four wives here. I'm gonna just going to go online and find me a good ChristianMingle.com kind of one. No, they didn't have that in those days. So what the, what the guys would do if they were going to find another wife is that they would find them from the enemy pagan nations around them. And whenever they'd meet this wife and she looked all nice and pretty on the outside and they'd marry her and bring her on into the family, she'd bring with her all of her household idols and all of her false gods and all of her false beliefs and she'd bring her false religion with her and what would happen is is that that king that once was godly would follow the way that she led exhibit a would be solomon or really exhibit a would be david <laughs> i mean king david a man for god's own heart i mean how many wives did he have some scholars say he had at least potentially 12 wives that he had they don't tell you those in the Sunday school stories when you're eight years old, do they? I mean, it's David and Goliath and, you know, David and all the, you know, great things that he did. They don't tell you that he had a, quite a few wives, you know, <laughs> you know, in the list. And he messed it up here. And his family, in a lot of ways, was a wreck as a result of it. Solomon followed his dad's ways, multiplied his dad's ways. And he suffered greatly. His heart was led astray, just like Deuteronomy said it would. So what's the application then? for us there's a clear application for us today and the application is this always 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 we must apply faithfulness to our lives by cultivating faithfulness within our marriage always we always have to demonstrate faithfulness by cultivating that in our marriage here's what here's what we find if you had a top five, top six list of instructions for the next king, honestly, how many of us would put anything to do with marriage on there? You know, how many of us would? If you had the president of our country, President Obama here, and if you were to give him, say, here's your top five things we need for our country, you're probably not going to cover his marriage. I mean, most of us probably wouldn't. And what we have a tendency to do is we compartmentalize, and, and what we have a tendency as guys to do really, really well is we put life in its own little categories, its own little compartments. And so you've got your work compartment, and you've got your sports compartment, you've got your leisure time compartment, you've got your money compartment, you've got your uh, relationships compartment, you've got all these little compartments. And we as guys get really good at maintaining all these little compartments in our lives. That's why, that's why for, for our wives sometimes they don't quite understand, they get a little bit frustrated, like how can you go to 
work with all this stuff going on around us. It's just, it's just my other compartment. I just kind of go to that compartment and everything is fine. And that's the way we operate. And there's a real tendency, if we're not careful, for us to have that one little compartment of our lives that belongs to us, and it's my compartment, and whatever goes on in that little compartment is okay. I can still go to church, and I can still serve in church, and I can still read my Bible, and I can still uh, try to influence people for Christ, and even say great things about my relationship with God, but this one little compartment of my life belongs to me. And what God is saying to these kings is, he's saying, you don't have any of those compartments. It's all mine, or it's none mine. (laughs) And when it comes to marriage, he says, you're not going to be like the other pagan nations because if you miss it and if you lose it here, and if you do not maintain faithfulness within the most basic of human relationships, that being your marriage, if you don't apply it here, you're not going to be a faithful leader in any area of your leadership. That's what he's saying. And you say, Brooks, this doesn't mean today what it used to. Uh, Oh, does it not? Let a president of this country fail morally, and everybody will be talking about it. It happened not too long ago, as in the 90s. It still matters. And failure in this area is failure in leadership across the board. And so God says, you've got to demonstrate faithfulness by cultivating it within your marriage according to God's design. You say, Brooks, I'm not married. I'm single or I'm single again. Well, then you cultivate that faithfulness to God through purity in this area of your life. And it impacts whether we do this or whether we don't. It impacts every other area of life. And so God says to the king, he says, one, don't multiply horses. Find your power only in me. He says, don't multiply wives, demonstrate faithfulness in this area because it impacts every, every other area of your life. And then look at the end of verse 17. He says, nor shall he greatly increase, or can we say multiply, silver and gold for himself. He must not pursue wealth above all others. In fact, I would say for us the application is we must not put wealth above our relationships how many families have suffered because of a failure to apply that one simple principle and here's what happens i've said this before if the devil jumped out at you, right? If you're on your way to the car today after this service is over and the devil jumped out from behind a tree and he had on his red jumpsuit and his, his red pitchfork, right? And his pointy tail and the ears and you know, the whole, you know, all that. and if he jumped out, I was like, ah, what are you going to do? You're going to, oh, you're going to run. I mean, you're going to be fine. He's not going to get you, right? But the devil doesn't work that way. Temptation doesn't operate that way. The way temptation operates is little by little, inch by inch, it owns and takes over a life to the point to where looking at this one thing in specific there are many who have come to the place and it wasn't as though they pursued wealth in one huge big decision and jettisoned their family in the process it was little by little and it showed itself by more and more work and taking on more and more projects and I've got this little side thing going just to make a few extra bucks and then I you know it's working a few extra nights away from the family and before long what happens is you look back again it doesn't happen all in one bite. You look back and you realize, you know what? My child is now in middle school or in high school or about to head off to college, and it's been a while since I've been to a ball game. <laughs> or it's been a while since we've ever had any significant time together. It's been a while since I've given them my undevoted attention. Why? Because what I've been pursuing 
It's not just being a faithful hard worker the way Scripture speaks of. No, I have crossed the line and I have now pursued wealth over my relationships. And when God says to the king of the land not to multiply or to seek to increase gold or silver. He's not saying not to work. The Bible says if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. I mean, there's a picture there where work is good, but he's saying do not ever value your wealth, your increase over the most basic of relationships and responsibilities that God has given you. And man, if there's one thing I can say to guys on this island, in this community, in this city, in this day in which we live, if you want to be a productive father who makes a lasting impact on the lives of your kids, we have got to get this one right. There is much at stake. And if it's good enough for the king, it ought to be good enough for us. It's interesting what God says next as we move on through that passage. Notice what it says in verse 18. Same chapter, first, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Notice what it says in verse 18 and 19. It says, Now it shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and of these statutes. He may learn to fear the Lord. What's the principle? The principle is this. We must always lead as one under authority every one of us and there is not one single person here from front to back side to side who is not under authority to someone every single one of us you may hold one of the greatest positions of power that this city holds again you may have positions of power in your workplace or positions that you hold But there's not a single one of us here that's not a person under authority. And when we begin to lose sight of the fact that we operate under the authority of God himself, that's why he says to the king, you must learn to live as one who fears the Lord. Then he makes it personal. Your God, fear the Lord, your God. He is saying, you as the king are still under authority. And so for you as a dad, if you feel as though you hold some position of power or, or wield some sword you know, in your family, that's, that's really not the design that God speaks of. Some of you were raised by a dad that way. And it was a heavy fist and it was an iron boot and it was my way or the highway. And for some of you, it became the highway. And that's not the picture of how God operates. But we are under authority. And God says when we understand that, we begin to live under his authority. We live in a way, ultimately, that fears him. Look at verse 20, and I'll begin to close. Here's why he must learn to fear God and to observe the words of his law. He says, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. In other words, the king was not to be on a high and mighty position of, of, uh, of power. He was just like everybody else. His heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons 
may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Isn't it interesting that what God includes there is the emphasis on the king and his sons? That's significant to me. It's interesting because it didn't have to be there. What God could have said was, here's the way the king's going to operate. Here's the parameters. Here are the guardrails. And if he does that, he's going to live long and happy in his kingdom. And all those who follow his leadership will live long and happy lives. No, he didn't say that. What God did was, excuse me, he drew a parallel between the king's leadership, between, between the king's uh, integrity between the king's yieldedness to God. He drew a parallel between all that and his family. And he said where he leads with integrity, where he leads under authority, where he doesn't pursue wealth, where he demonstrates faithfulness, and where he understands that his power is not in himself but in the God he serves and follows, where he gets that right, his sons will benefit as well. And dads, you face an awful lot of decisions as you seek to lead your family. You as adults, you face a lot of decisions that have direct implications on your family. And we've got to get them right. The U.S. Open finishes today. If you're a golf fan, you know that. You're already wondering when I want to finish speaking so you can get home and start watching. If you follow golf, or even if you don't, this is one of the biggest of the year. It's one of the majors. Leading that tournament currently is a man named Phil Mickelson. Had he not played in the era in which he plays under the shadow of Tiger Woods, most would understand that he is one of the greatest golfers to ever play the game. A lot of people just miss that. He leads the tournament today with one round to go. Phil Mickelson has had, in a sense, two different ends to his career. Today, he's one of the greatest ever playing. He's winning tournaments left and right, and he's winning majors, and people understand him to be a great, great golfer. But earlier in his career, that wasn't so clear. Earlier in his career, Mickelson was known for just throwing caution to the wind and going for broke. And one of the ways that's shown in the game of golf is is, uh, is choosing whether or not to lay up. You say, what, what, is, what does that terminology mean? Well, in golf, you've got certain holes that are long holes. They're par fives, 500, 550 yards. Par for those holes is five, meaning that if you are able from the time you tee off to the time you sink that final putt, if you get it in five, then you've hit par. Anything better than that is 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 going to be good for your score. Well, the goal in golf, obviously, for those of you who don't play, is to finish your round of 18 holes with the fewer strokes that you can. Well, on those long par fives, you hit your tee shot, and the pros, they'll knock it out there 320, 330. you still got a couple hundred yards to go. you got hazards around the green. You've got bunkers, sand traps, little creeks that run by. I mean, it's not an easy shot. I mean, these are the best of the best. The people who design these courses don't make them easy. And they're often a decision, there's often a decision that has to be made on that second shot on those long par fives, you have to decide, am I going to lay up, am I going to intentionally hit it short of the green so that I'll have an easier third shot, or am I going to throw caution to the wind, am I going to go for broke, am I going to risk it all, and am I going to pull out my three wood and just try to lace my second shot hard, long, and, 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 uh, and on, on target and try to reach the green in two. I mean, it's a huge risk. And in Mickelson's career earlier on, he never applied wisdom. He never laid up. And he put a lot of golf balls on those second shots in the creek. And he lost a lot of rounds and a lot of tournaments as a result of it. 
Later on in his career, he learned when to lay up, when to go for broke. And you say, well, Brooks, how do you know the difference? I mean, where, how do they learn these rules? I mean, when do you really know when to go for the green and when to lay up early, uh, uh, lay up short? H- how do you know the difference? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question. And you've got to get it right. Or you lose a lot as a result. So how do I raise my kids to make sure they live lives when they get to college that honor God and don't pack a lot of baggage that'll take 10 years to unpack. How do I raise them that way? That's the million dollar question. (laughs) How do I operate within my marriage? How do I operate outside my marriage to make sure my marriage doesn't suffer and crumble because of stupid choices that I make? That's the million dollar question. That's where we gotta know where to apply wisdom and lay up, and when to go for broke, and just follow God regardless of the cost. How do we know the difference between the two? It only comes from walking with Him. It only comes from living a life that fears Him, a life that understands that our power is not in ourselves, it's, it's only in His life through us. It comes when we understand that we have to cultivate faithfulness in the most basic of our relationships, starting with our marriage. And it comes when we understand that we can't ever afford to put wealth in the pursuit of it before relationships in our lives. It comes whenever we choose to live a life, as Psalm 1 says, where regardless of what all others do, we fix our focus on Him. And we follow Him with all that we are, day by day, moment by moment, so that whenever the time comes for the hard decisions, he gives us wisdom because that's what he does. Whenever the time comes where we need to apply strength for the challenges that we face, the temptations that come, he gives strength because that's what he does. And whenever we need to have that provision that we've understood that we can't provide for, because we're human and we're faulty and we're finite. We find that a God who has no limit to his resources seems to always provide, always on time. Because that's what he does. The king in his kingdom. <laughs> it's not you. And it's not me. And it's not our stuff. And it's not our families. No, it's, it's him. And it's what he's doing through us as we follow him. Go for broke and let him be first. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you do give us not only your word, but Lord, a history full of examples of where your principles prove themselves true. Sometimes in the blessing that people experienced and sometimes in the and the failure that came. Lord, many of the kings over Israel would completely miss it. And Lord, they would pursue wealth, or they would multiply wives, or they would think their strength was in themselves. And Lord, their their nation would end up suffering as a result. Lord, for, for us today in a modern day context, as we apply this passage to our lives, Lord, if we fail to understand those truths as well, if we begin to think that we are the king, and that we are the master of our own ship, and 
you know, that, that everything that we have or accomplish is going to be up to us, and that you are to be marginalized in our lives, that we can live life without boundaries and operate in our marriages and in the morality side of our lives however we want. If we feel like we can just chase after wealth and it not cost us, Lord, we're, we're really in for a big fall. Because, Lord, at the end of the day, we're all people under authority. And the quicker we understand that, and the quicker we respond to that, the better. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are the king. Jesus came as king of kings. And that for the, for the person who understands that we are in need of a savior, and when we turn from our sin and we submit our lives to Jesus, accepting him as our savior to, for, to forgive us and, to, and to, to, to make us right with God, when we come to him as our Lord, as first in our lives, then we understand that you are a king who is always good to your people. <laughs> you bless us and you provide for us and you give us what we need. And even in the midst of a hard world, Lord, your way proves itself to be best. And so, Lord, I pray for the dads that are here. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't miss it, that we wouldn't chase after things that one day are going to just burn up and not matter. I pray that as it relates to our marriages and our children, Lord, that we would hit the bullseye, that we would show faithfulness, that we would pursue relationship. And, Lord, that we would demonstrate what you look like as we live our lives on a daily basis. Lord, none of us are perfect. We've all got a long way to go. But, God, may we at least leave this place today being able to say, you know what, I know how far I've got to go, but at least I'm yielded. I'm yielded to Christ, and I'm letting him be first in my life. Lord, for some I know that they they have a lot of regrets. Lord, all of us do, and they look back and think, well, I should have heard this message 10 years ago. Lord, there's no better place to pick it up and start than today. And so, Lord, I pray that whatever's needed, that we would follow you. For those that don't know you, that they would choose to give their lives to Christ today. And, Lord, that we would apply what you desire us to, live out this message in a way that honors you. Thank you for our families, God. I pray that you'd help us to walk in a way that honors you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.